The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. If you haven't fast-forwarded through this part yet, here's Brandon. And we are back with another tremendous little episode of the show. Today, for your ears, we have a discussion of the 1973 film, The Day of the Jackal. Along for this journey is an award-winning author of the novels Bender at the Bon Parisian and Pigeon, Mr. Prez Maxson. What a warm welcome. Thanks, Brandon. Man, I love your show. I've been listening to it. Um, and man, I gotta I gotta say, like, I, I feel like every movie I either love or I sort of like start to love because I'm listening. I guess that's probably your point or probably one of your missions. So well well done you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And you and I, we met back, what was it like gonna be two years ago, maybe at the Popcon in Fort Wayne, Indiana? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was the first one I did. That's mm-hmm. the first one I took Pigeon to. But then I saw you again, like just a few months later, they did the indie one. Yeah, yeah. They were like about six months apart, I think. Because this mm-hmm. was, it was like right before New Year's Eve. I ended up, like, I was supposed to be, I was going there just to do a live episode of my old podcast. And then I wound up with like pants down. This is your podcast stage. Here you go. And my co host from my other show, he didn't come. And then my producer couldn't make it. And I was just like, well, I got to do something. I got this whole table to myself. Like, I was just supposed to go up for an hour, do my show, and that was it. And I was going to maybe do two episodes because the signups were very light. And so I decided, like, I'm going to go around to, like, some of the artists and stuff that are here and see if they just want to come talk. And then I found out I couldn't record any of it. They didn't have any recording device. It was just, like, entertain the hallway. And I found you. And it was like, hey, you and you were like, yes. I think you were one of the first people I talked to, too. I was like, really? I was like, okay. Like, And then I was worried people were going to blow me off or whatever. But you were like, yeah, super cool and super into it. And we had a great conversation up there. And it, part of, I know, I have a guest and I'm just the one talking here. This is really bad. But I'm building up Prez here, talking to you and going, man, I wish, even if I could record it, I would have loved to have an avenue of our chat because we kind of bailed on some of your stuff, but just talked about us living. We realized we lived in Los Angeles at the same, around the same time and started talking things. And that was pretty interesting. And I was like, man, I wish we recorded that. And, but even if I did, I didn't have an Avenue to do that. And it's sort of where the Genesis that weekend of where my new, the show started coming to light and filling out. So it was part, you were part of that big reason how this show has come to be was, talking to you that weekend get you know getting those interviews down and just being like oh man and just having you on talking about your book talking about things and you know somewhere through that in my brain comes the show so wow. i have you to thank well stop. That. that makes me feel pretty good i i gotta admit like i when i first got to that thing in fort wayne i'd never done a, a convention before and and i was like i'm not only going to be here to try and get readers i'm just gonna you know see who i can kind of connect with 
So, so even before I knew you had a podcast stage, even before I knew there'd even be an opportunity for an opportunity for me to do something right then and there, I thought I'm just going to, you know, try and meet him and try and get on his podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> so you were targeted early, whether you knew it or not by me. And I, I did wind up having a really good time talking to you. I felt like I walked away from that convention saying like, okay, I think under any circumstances, I would have met Brandon. We would have been friends. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we like, definitely. And then I got so excited when I went to the next PopCon and saw you there. And you were like, I was looking for you. I was like, I was looking for you. Yeah. And we had booths pretty close to each other. But yeah, that was that was, that was really fun. Um, that was an exhausting weekend, that one. Had no sleep. But yeah, that was definitely... And it looked like you had a pretty decent time. You uh, had a cool video at the... You had like a little ping pong game. Yeah, that's like a little promo I run that, that is a leftover from visiting author fairs. Like when you go to an, a library for an author fair, there's 30 authors in the room in a giant circle of tables and everyone's fighting for a reader. Like one person will walk in the room and start making the rounds and everyone's like mm-hmm. trying to sell them their book. So I thought I got to have something better. You know, I got to have an experience. This just comes back to marketing, you know, which I'm familiar with in my in my job, but it's like, you know, I need to, to give them an experience they won't forget. So I had this little ping pong ball and a bucket and, and I'd say, okay, I'll give you the book for free if you can throw it in the bucket without looking. And mm-hmm. then the, the gimmick is even is if you make it, I will give away a book to you. And it, it happens so infrequently that I don't mind that. And then I also I say that the deal is I, you have to let me like film you with my phone Cause then I go and make like a little promo video and use all the misses as like in my promo video of like what a good time I've had at the, con- at the convention of the author fair. So that was always my way of like trying to stay memorable with people in those conventions. I had a couple of friends I knew at the, that one and they were like, dude, we met this really cool guy. He's this author. And I was like, Prez. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I know him. Yeah. I know. <laughs> they're like, oh, you do? <laughs> Like yeah, cool. Yeah, that was cool. But yeah, so you're you're an author now. But you started you you were trying to break out as a musician originally. That was I mean yeah year. I followed my passion after college when I got my degree in writing from Iowa. But I moved with the rock band I was in at Iowa with one of the guys. He and I moved to Los Angeles and and started a new band there. And that was like you know my passion for a little while and. It's not that I ever stopped writing. I just like all my creative output writing wise was was mm-hmm. channeled into the band, you know, and and writing music or, you know, lyrics to music. And we had tons of fun. We made like zero money. And <laughs> I kind of fell into a job in television and that kind of became my day job. But it was really fun also. And that kind of led to more avenues in music because the, the more I the higher I got in television, the more sort of power I had that if we needed a musician for the show, like I, I had myself and my network sort of to help the producers with. And then I moved here and music exists here. The music industry definitely exists in Indiana, but I played dueling piano for pianos for a while downtown. And it was real fun, but sort of exhausting. And it was probably right around 2010 or so, maybe 2011 when I thought, I thought, you know, I got to start doing something that's not taking me out of the house every night. You know, I was married now and I really wanted to spend time with my wife. I didn't just want her to come home from work and me to like leave. Right. <laughs> you know? 
And it was like, I, I want to be able to do something that's quieter in the house. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to just get like, start channeling my creativity, not away from music, but towards something maybe a little bit more quiet. And maybe it would, I thought I've been doing the music thing for 10 years. Maybe I should, it would be healthy to, to stretch my, my creative brain in a new way. So that's when I first started writing my, my first novel. And I still play a lot of music. I still do it. And it's especially really fun when you have kids now. You know, I, I play every day and I play with them. And I still play gigs like every now and then because it's really fun. But yeah, being a writer has really sort of taken over my professional life. So, and I, and I don't hate it. You have two books and you gave me a copy of Pigeon, which you signed, yeah. which normally like, here you go. He probably just put it on a shelf. I read the book. I know, and that impressed me. It took me, it took me a couple, a couple months. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this damn thing. And then I was, took it with me. I went on this family vacation that was not like my type of ideal vacation, but that book was one of my favorite parts of it because I really got into it. I like, I was like, all right, you probably wrote a nice little book, but I was like, this is really damn good. I, <laughs> I really yeah, enjoyed it. You. It was very uh, modern noir. And reminded me, kind of had a, a vibe like uh, this movie I like called The Long Goodbye. And it had this world that you created in France, kind of this underground, wealthy, weird, wealthy people's world. If you want to tell them about the little premise of Pigeon, no, you I got just it. go throw in crazy it. details. You're nailing it. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's like a, a, a kid who's uh, parents own a restaurant. He's kind of a bus boy. And then he stumbles into like, the typical Hitchcock Crowen brothers, random regular person caught in this big unveiling mystery. And the, the details you go through are like so unique down to like the white clothes you have to wear at the one club and they got the game and there's the history of the game. And it's got just, I mean, you're really good at, I, I don't have to take a lot to picture these in my mind. They come right away. Like I envision, I've never been to France but I envisioned your France really easily. And there's a lot of, you play with expectations really well in there and you've got a really fun kind of, it's a, a little bit goofy ending, but it's totally earned. Totally earned. Nice. Good. Oh, but, that's uh, good to hear. But I, I enjoyed the hell. And I'm not just not like, Oh, I met this author. Give me this book. I'm kissing his ass. No, it's a, it's a terrific book. It's really fun. It goes really fast. Many points. I didn't want to put it down. And yeah, a few things about it. You got all those major plot points right. It started when it started when I kind of had this idea to make up a sport and mm -hmm. never really tell all the details of the sport. Right. You know, it was like that's all I had to go on. And it was just like, all right, I'm gonna make up like some stupid sport, but I'm never really gonna say the rules and it's gonna be some little mystery about this sport. And it kind of grew from there, but the idea that it was a sport no one's ever heard of unless you're like ultra rich. And I felt like there was mm -hmm. kind of a lot of fodder there. The the fish out of water idea is easy. Like the ordinary guy thrust into the, the mystery is actually pretty easy to write because you think, okay, the, the audience can very easily see it through his eyes because he's new to everything. So mm -hmm. like this whole world. And, you know, we'll get into this a little bit, but like, I really love Paris and it's sort of my favorite city abroad to be in. And my first book, Benedict the Bon Parisian, is set in Paris in a, not in a much more real version because it's like the same type of storytelling. 
it was just, I decided to set it there because it was like complete escapism for me. It's like, I want to, you know, I would, I'd sit down to write and I could, I could picture where I wanted to be and kind of picture what that felt like and try and put that on the page. With Pigeon, the idea was you, when you walk down the street in any city, you, you'll pass mm-hmm. a doorway and you'll kind of say like, wow, that's a beautiful building. That's a beautiful doorway. Like, I wonder what's behind that door or I wonder what's down that street that's like a little quieter and and not scary, but just like less traversed. Or you look at that high rise and you'll say like, wow, whose office is that? Like way up there, you know, there's an, el- an, an element of mystery, like in all these cities and Paris absolutely has that with its beautiful architecture and, and sections of the city have like wildlife that has really creeped in, you know, whether it's Ivy in, on a building or old parks, stuff like that. And so, so I thought, okay, I'm going to set this book pigeon in real life Paris but absolutely like make up beyond my wildest imagination what's behind the door. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that that's where it kind of came from. But it is it is goofy and I'm glad to hear you say I earned the goofy ending. No, it's and totally it's it it goes it goes for it. And and I'm like I was like, this is great. And it was totally earned, like every every bit of it. And I really like your resolution with the main character at the end too, where I could see where there'd be a temptation to go another way with him sure uh but i i I think it's perfect and it shows your strength as a writer to where you know how to take him his journey yeah awesome cool thank you definitely so with something like pigeon who would be your dream actor or somebody to read your book like who who would be the perfect fit for pigeon sean connery sean oh yeah (laughs) No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's an iconic voice. He would have done. I mean, that was the kind of work he would do in his yeah. later years. So. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Gosh. I should grab the croquet mallet. Yeah, I should grab the mallet. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, I don't know, actually. You know, probably probably someone like Josh Gad. His like okay. personal brand is like yeah. a little closer. There yeah. you go. Yeah. I've never thought about that, though. What a great interview question. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And did you do you visualize when you're creating the characters and exploring them? Do you ever take them from like how how much of it comes from people you know? How much comes from like imaginary dream casting in your head? Or are oh. they just who they are start to finish, like your legit own creation? That's a good question. Yeah. It varies. Like in my first book, Bender at the Bone Parisian, which Dude, I am happy to send you. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize. I, I, I shouldn't be surprised that you don't have it because um, I didn't give it to you. But uh, I, uh, yeah, I only read it if you give it to me. No, no, no but that's how. Hey, that is how it works for indie authors. Right. Like, you know, if you're not involved, there's a there's not a huge chance. I shouldn't say that. I have. I actually am very. I feel very lucky to have readers that I don't know personally. <laughs> Right. But uh, but Bender is like I mean, first first long form like novel I'd ever written, and so that the main character is basically my voice, and my my wife is is this is his wife the the main character's wife. But I realized like when I was writing it that I really yeah, I could envision myself as the main character. Yeah, he makes a few choices that I probably wouldn't make, but he's not too far off. He he wouldn't have allowed himself to get in a dangerous situation the way they get into a dangerous situation in that book, the way I I would let that, but I needed that for the story. I needed him to have that, that willingness in the story. 
But I, I pretty quickly realized that my wife couldn't, as she is in real life, could not function in the book as the wife of the main character. Because just for the, the storytelling, I needed her to be the risk taker in the relationship. That's not how our marriage is. I'm the risk taker. I needed mm-hmm. her to be a lot more trusting of strangers immediately than my wife like really is. And the more I started writing it, I realized I needed her to look different. Like her, like it was so I I really actually now that I'm thinking about it, I, I used to say it was sort of it started as as my wife, but it turned into somebody else completely. And I was picturing someone close to the style of this poetry professor I had in school, who was like this kind of like young free spirit woman who was a grad student at the time. But that's usually how it starts for me to answer your question. Like it starts with a vision of somebody I know and veers from it until in the end, it doesn't sound like the person in real life. Mm-hmm. And the visual in my head sometimes sticks with that person or at least elements or sticks with the character elements of the original person. But it's like, it's really hard to say, oh, hey, I, man, I base this character on you. And for the person to pick it up and find similarities, I'm, I'm more apt that the person would pick it up and say, this is what you think of me. And I, and I have to explain, <laughs> right, yeah. oh, no, 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 no. It turned into <laughs> someone who's not you, but I, you kind of inspired it. I would not say that. I would not say it, yeah. <laughs> Just to note that Pigeon won Book of the Year with the Lady Godiva Award from Naked Reviewers mm-hmm. and was a finalist in the Indie Book Awards, earned honorable mention in both Paris and New York Book Fests. In 2016, 2017, and 2018, you were the Nouveau, which is a local publication in Indianapolis. Used to be. I Used guess. to be, yeah. Uh, you won Best Local uh, Author Nominee in the Best of Indie Awards until they discontinued it, which I think the Indie Star picked it up or something. I, I Well, Indie Star had their own for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know I, if they have an author category. I've never looked or anything. Yeah, my, po- my old podcast was a finalist one year in one of those Best of Indie things once. Yeah. We lost to a... Um, it was like this erotic storytelling draw. Like, oh, one. yeah. I can't remember what it was, but yeah, that's, we lost. That's my mom's podcast. That's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was weird. Like nobody, and nobody in the podcast scene knew of it, heard of it, knew it was there, and it just popped up, got all the votes. Huh. Like, oh, all right, what? Who are these people? Like, what is going on? Like, we didn't know this existed here, but that was that was a fun one. One more question with writing: Are there any sort of extensions from that that you hope to launch into, or other? endeavors you'd like to explore if given the opportunity to leap off of novel writing or maybe you know evolve your writing into a different form i don't know good question um never gotten that question before i think i think an evolution like that would come naturally just like kind of how i evolved into writing novels out of music it's not like for years i was saying like oh someday i'm going to do this there came a time when I had a forcing function to to evolve into it. And I kind of thought, like, I just sat back and was like, well, what makes me happy? And like, what do I really want to do? Mm-hmm. That'll kind of like be the next logical creative step. And right now I don't have the desire to evolve out of, you know, writing novels. I mean, I've done a lot of like other short form writing. Like I'm not a good poet. But I like every now and then enjoy doing it, but it's never like crossed my mind really to like do like a poetry book, like slide one in there, you know, or or anything. 
I, I make a living as a copywriter. And so mm-hmm. that kind of scratches the short form itch. And I feel, I feel like it helps me become a better novelist because I have, I have much more attention paid to the, the short, quippy phrases and like a kind of a sentence by sentence edit than gotcha. maybe I would as, as a novelist. So I don't, I don't think I have anything right now that, that I have earmarked for like the next evolution. But you never know. That's the nice thing about creativity. You never know where it'll lead you. This was the sixth attempt on the life of President de Gaulle. In desperation, the OAS terrorists hired a professional killer. His code name, the Jackal. This is a once-in-a-lifetime job. Whoever does it can never work again. How much do you want? Half a million. What? In cash. I'd like to know how you expect us to find half a million dollars so quickly. A desperate plan. Nothing left to chance. Every chilling detail. Time to the second. How do you stop the jackal? How do you stop the clock? Commissioner Berthier, we're in trouble on this one, since not even the OAS know who he is. Action service can't destroy him. Territorial surveillance can't pick him up at the border because they don't know what he looks like. An unparalleled manhunt. A determined and relentless killer. Impossible to know. Impossible to stop. Every chilling moment of Frederick Forsyth's sensational book, brilliantly filmed by director Fred Zinnemann. He's vanished. I don't think we really ever had any idea what kind of man you've been pursuing. Excuse me. It's just occurred to me that we've got two days to catch the jackal. Of course, liberation. That's what he's been waiting for. Step by step, with fascinating precision, the jackal moves closer to the moment of kill, to the day of the jackal. The Day of the Jackal is directed by four-time Academy Award winner Fred Zinnemann. Stars Edward Fox, Terrence Alexander, Old God George Picot. Mar- if I murder a name, I apologize. Michael Alclair, Delphine Serig, and Michael Lonsdale. It's based Old on the- George Picot is going to be pissed when she listens to this. Oh, go, 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 go. yes. She sure was. She's, I mean, she comments every week on the episodes. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, based on the 1971 novel of the same name, the film is about a professional assassin known only as Jackal, who is hired to assassinate French President Charles de Gaulle in the summer of 1963. Now, Prez, so when we talked about this, you gave me a few films that you'd be up for doing and i saw this one and it just stuck out i was like yes this was and my then, number one yeah this was your number one but you're like i'm not sure if you want to go there. i'm like i'm picking i'm always going to pick the weird one or the outlier or the one that just stands out and it's an important one to you so share the importance of day of the jackal well i've learned in the last minute that unfortunately mademoiselle georges picot is no longer with us she did pass away oh okay <laughs> And so if you guys watch this, she's the member of OAS. She's the member of OAS that kind of goes undercover to try and get information mm-hmm. against uh, the Jackal. And frankly, she's, she's beautiful. I was hoping she would be alive and listen to this and, you know, want to be my friend. <laughs> uh, but my hopes were dashed. Yeah. So, so my relationship with this film is not like actually complicated. I feel like 
you know, when, when I don't know what it was like for anybody else, but when I was a kid, my dad was always trying to get us to watch like his favorite movies, which as a father, I do now. To our right. Show. It's a rite of passage. Right. And so I probably saw this movie for the first time when I was like, I don't know, 10, 11. And my dad was like, this is the most exciting, like suspenseful thing. And I don't remember a lot of parts of it. I just remember the ending because this is like probably the biggest spoiler in the whole thing. But when like the thing I remember most from that first viewing was when the jackal gets blown away at the end. Right. You know, it's like for a 10 year old kid, that was like really memorable. And then I spent the summer in Paris when I was 16. And I don't remember if I watched the movie again, like right before we went or right after we went, maybe. Mm -hmm. But like that, like the, the, the great thing that one of the things that still to this day draws me to the movie is that even though it was shot in the early 70s, it still looks like Paris in the 90s or now, you know, that this is a city that, uh, of course, is a living, breathing city. But I mean, it looks like parts of Paris look like the way it looked in like 1800, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of the architecture, I would say, that Absolutely. they left. Yeah. So, so I had that kind of initial thing with it. And then I'd say about 10 years ago, flash forward, you know, from, from when I was a teenager, flash forward many years, uh, you know, decade and a half, whatever, you get to about 10 years ago. And I, I don't remember the year exactly, but we were in this house and, and we were like falling asleep watching TV. And I think my wife was already out and I went to Netflix. And in the earlier days of Netflix streaming, this was on Netflix. It's not anymore. Mm -hmm. I remember being like, oh, yeah, I remember Day of the Jackal, (laughs) you know, like, all right. I think I saw that once or twice when I was a kid. And so now I would have been like in my early 30s and I watched it and like I saw and and that's when I fell in love because I was kind of like, oh, right. I remember this. Oh, right. I remember that. And then it was kind of like, oh, I recognize that street in Paris. And oh, I recognize like that. And oh, where's that actor now, you know? And so over the course of the last 10 years, I think I've seen this movie more than I've seen any other movie with the possible exception of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But this is one of those that whenever I travel, I like I have it on my phone because I know if there's not a movie I want to watch on the plane, I know I have a backup, you know. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good movie to do that with. I, re- I think so. I hadn't watched it in a few years. I had seen it before, like once, maybe once or twice. But I do, I do like it. it. You can tell so much comes from this movie afterward. I mean, this is a clear influencer on the Bourne films, which the Bourne films come from a book, kind of have this, which they had a Carlos the Jackal, which was based off a real life guy. But it kind of, you see kind of the similarities in the type of movie they're trying to do within the kind of environment they're trying to put it in. You could see uh, that happening, but it's, it's like a spy film, but it's not totally like, it's got the spy film elements yeah. and it's like meets the like European car movies of that era. Like the Italian job, it feels like those it's got like the hallmarks of, of those type of spy espionage things like the guys listening on the headphones with the tapes roiling and the secret meetings on the park benches and it's it's a beautiful marriage of like the 60s psychedelic spy film meets the bonnie and clyde like francis ford coppola realism of the 70s like that all that boom it's day of the jackal and it's you know definitely since it takes it's got this 
travelogue of France and Britain and Italy and Austria. So it's got all that beautiful makeover without even trying. Yeah. Yeah, Without even trying. It's effortless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a really cool shot. I loved. There's the one of the cop when he's transferring that and they've got a held on him driving through uh, like behind him. And you're kind of like hard on him behind and you follow that cop all the way. It's through something. But when he's on the motorcycle driving through the streets and it goes under the arch just yeah. really effective stuff that it feels like ingenuitive for that time, but I don't know who else might have done something like that. But yeah, no, I I was attracted to a bunch of stuff, especially sort of as a writer. I mean, I not really working at all in television or anything anymore. I feel like I have a nice appreciation for stuff like that, like beautiful shots. Right, you, you used know. to be a casting director for like reality television. <laughs> Yeah, which so. and like reality television is not, it's not art. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the same deal for this, but right. Um, but uh, you do have a hand in you know working in television and stuff. Yeah, but I mean, like I can absolutely appreciate like a beautiful shot and a beautifully. I feel like that there are several times in the movie when like the camera helps tell the story uh, as much as the script does. Like to to your point, like the stuff is all filmed on location in a way that pays homage to the setting without being overly grandiose. No. Yeah. It just, it's there and it just so happens. Like they don't try to like, Oh, look, we're right here. Look at this landmark. It's It's just there. It Mm -hmm. just makes it more real. Puts you in that world. It's a, it's shot effectively for the scene, not for the scenery. That's probably, yeah. Perfect way to put it. Perfect way to put it. And I, and, and I was, the, like when I really started kind of getting into it, the the things that really attracted me to the the storytelling are a little bit less visual elements. I mean, obviously, as a writer, I'm a little bit less concerned with the visual storytelling as I am just the the arc of of you know the action and the when I say action, I don't mean like fight action, but like the arc of what's happening, you know. And uh, what I kind of loved about it was that it's rooted somewhere in truth in that it's like, it's documented right. that, that someone tried to kill De Gaulle. In fact, that whole opening scene with the, the drive by attempt that De Gaulle survived mm-hmm. that happens within the first five minutes, the first three minutes, like that happened. And there's, that is like a documented attempt on De Gaulle's life. But everything after that is like, kind of like, well, it could have happened if it did. The rest of the world wouldn't know about it, right? You know, yeah, no, but, it's it's that interesting of a tale that could work, yeah, right. And so that actually was something that, like, with Pigeon and with Bender, it's like I wanted to be rooted enough in real Paris where you're like, I don't know, maybe down that that road or behind that door, maybe something like that's yeah. going on. Like, like it's and and there are enough goofy elements in Pigeon, Pigeon. To, to use your term, like goofy endings that I earned, I probably don't want to advertise it too much as, as like goofy because that's a little misleading. But it's like pigeon is more imaginative than something you'd you'd like think is happening in real life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I kind of like thinking like, well, but how do we know? We don't. <laughs> <laughs> like we're we're not right. in ultra billionaire circles that have made up their own sport, you know? Yeah. And the novel that I finished right before we were all quarantined has that sort of theme and mode more than more than pigeon more than bender it's like it's one of those that's like i really wanted it rooted in reality but you're looking between the lines of reality 
and saying like, okay, I know this didn't happen. It's fiction, but would we know it actually if it didn't? And that's what like Day of the Jackal is like the quintessential like storytelling of like, well, if that if there really was like a master assassin hunting down De Gaulle and he gets like taken down before the public ever finds out about him, essentially, would would the rest of us know? Right, yeah. yeah. And that's what I kind of love about the film's perspective. It starts with you know, this guy, this assassin, his his meeting, like he's gonna do this. We're following him as he prepares and do this and he's ahead of everything. And then once a key bit of information comes in and they hire in Michael Lonsdale's character, mm-hmm. we sort switch and he sort of he's he's gonna keep going with his mission, but now he's the hunted and you see him escaping and them being the ones we follow getting clues like while he's trying to create these identities he orders like a gun a custom-made gun he's get you know he's getting passports setting up really cool stuff with this job we then see it from the other side where they're interrogating they're getting info there i mean there's uh you know they set up the like affairs and yeah. they're just getting behind they're they're getting close losing him completely and it's a lot of stuff done in such a way it's it's pretty dry, but it's it's got a sense of it, and totally is fantasy, but it's got a sense that you could buy that this is kind of how it, how it goes. It's probably made shorter for entertainment value, but this is kind of how the process goes. There's lots of dudes in rooms. It's not just two dudes searching. There's lots of dudes. So much smoking, you'll have emphysema after the movie's over. Even though you're not a smoker, and yeah. there's smoke in your house, it comes through the screen at you. It comes yeah. through the screen. It's, it's not humorless, but it's kind of a cold movie. Yeah. But it's interesting. Like, the characters, they they have an interesting thing. Like, there's nobody as interesting as the Jackal in the beginning. Yeah. And then they bring in Michael Lonsdale, who's like, oh, I can be as interesting as the Jackal. Yeah. And so there you have your Hunter Hunted. And I really like what they do with the Jackal. Like, he comes into these guys with the OAS. They hire him. They're French. He's British, right? Is that, I think, they bring him in. Supposedly. Supposedly, that's yeah. The the thing at the end is uh, we don't, like, we don't you know, really, know. really I, like you thought you knew who he was, maybe, mm-hmm. and they try and dispel it at the end. Yeah, right. And so he comes in, and it's these uptight guys sitting down with with mustaches and suits, uh, like really plain black, you know, regular ass suits. And here comes this guy. He's blonde. He's thin. He's clean shaven. He's got a light colored suit. And he's very like effeminate with his like mannerisms and his way he goes about. He's a little flashier, stylish dresser. Sells you on this guy, and it's yeah. kind of this sense of this cool stealth sense of danger that this guy can pull all this stuff off. Like you know, he's not really intimidating where you just think everyone's dead in the room at every time, but you still don't trust him. But you're right. very intrigued to follow him, and you almost want to see him pull it off. <laughs> like that's how <laughs> that's how cool this guy is but they really do a visually he could be a silent movie he works without any dialogue and even when he talks he's he's great well that's what i was about to say it's amazing because like he comes into that first scene and he he has a normal conversation with them in the first scene when Mm -hmm. when like he's telling them to rob some banks from the network and you know everything but there's so much on-screen time where he's not speaking that as a a writer that was another thing where i was kind of like wow like, how do I, because my primary, like, mechanism for pushing a story forward, story forward is dialogue. 
I personally, as a reader, am not a major fan of just like giant chunks of text, you know, like describing Mm -hmm. things. I would rather say something in one sentence that gives you a picture and let your imagination fill in some of the other things based on what you feel because of how the characters interact with each other. And I mean, that's just like a pretty basic principle in writing is like that, you know, you don't want to you don't want to tell the audience, your reader, you want to show them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and how do you show them? For me, it's like, well, I, I don't want to tell you about a character. I want you to hear them speak. And I want you to hear it come through naturally the, the way real humans interact. You know? Yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't say two things and move on. They have conversations. Right. right yeah. Exactly. And so, and, and so I, I was intrigued by, by the movie because like they, they don't use dialogue that way they do here and there but like jackal's on screen for so much time where it's just him like it was really on edward fox to tell us things about the character without saying it well not just on edward fox obviously there's a lot there's a lot going on that, that tell us things about the jackal but that that is another thing i kind of love about it you know it's just that, that he's this guy He doesn't have to be speaking all the time, but when he does, it's like intelligent. It's suave. Mm -hmm. I saw it once. I didn't care. They they quote unquote remade this movie uh, in the '90s as the Jackal, which it doesn't really. It has like the setups kind of there, but it's not like they made Bruce Willis the Mm -hmm. Jackal. But I'm watching this, and if this movie's being remade in the '90s, I'm like, how was Jeremy Irons the first guy you did not call you? you call for this. Like, how did right. you not call him? This is, like, I'm watching the Jackal. I'm like, Jeremy Irons would kill in this role. Yeah. Like, maybe it's because it's too obvious, but. Yeah. I don't know. He, I mean, he looks a lot like Edward Fox from that. Right. And uh, wearing the ascots and stuff. I'm like, oh man. Like, yeah. yeah. I well, I that. think it's important to note that like Frederick Forsyth, the guy who wrote the novel, The Day mm-hmm. of the Jackal that inspired the movie, pretty much disavowed the movie, The Jackal. Ah. And said, like, I don't even want my name on the Jackal because it's such a departure from the actual story being told right. the day of the Jackal. I think I saw the Jackal in the theaters. I probably was in college. That's the one where he kills Jack Black for a sport, right? Right, yep. Yeah. That's the only part. I, I think remember. the big deal about that movie when it came out was that Bruce Willis kissed a guy. That was like the big Ooh, the big controversy and selling thing like, oh, Bruce Willis kisses a man in this movie because he's this undercover guy or whatever. And I I remember my memories on this movie are just, I saw it and I know that. Like, I think I rented it on VHS. I remember him killing Jack Black, but that was it. Test killing Jack Black. Like my Richard Gere political thriller I remember from the 90s more is Red Corner. That one I can tell you stuff about, but this one I just, yeah, I don't know. But uh, um, speaking of the novel, have you read the novel for this? Yeah, I've, I've read parts of the novel. I feel like that's one of those where the movie is actually really true to the novel. So I started the novel once. I have it downstairs on the shelf, I think. I think I still have it. But I had it down, to, I, I had it, like I'd start reading it and I'd just be like, wow, there isn't like a lot of new information here. And I do like find a lot of joy in reading, but it was just one of those that that I didn't stick with because I gotcha. already knew everything, you know, that was going to happen. I have listened to it all the way on audiobook twice, I think. Oh, okay. Um, and I really and I really enjoy that. I kind of, I it's not that I don't count that as reading because you get the information, but you definitely process 
like I notice more things about language if I'm reading it than if I'm okay. listening. If I'm listening to it, I, I'm hearing different things. I'm hearing more about the narrative. I'm hearing the person's voice as they express like the ideas. But no, I so I'm familiar with the novel and that the movie is actually really, really close to the storyline in the novel, if not almost identical. I yeah. yeah, I'd never read the novel, but I'm glad yeah that you have it right there. I feel like yeah, with this type of subject matter, I feel like this would pair good if you did a double feature. It'd be a long double feature because they're long movies. But um, I don't know if you've seen Three Days of the Condor, but I feel like those two would complement. They're political thrillers both, and Max von Sydow plays a hitman in Three Days of the Condor, chasing after Robert Redford. I think another double feature that would fit would be the Odessa File with John Voight. Okay. Do you remember that one? Because that's also based on a book by Frederick Forsyth. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that would fit real good. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe, have you ever seen The Boys from Brazil? I've heard of that one. I have not seen The Boys from oh, Brazil. Oh, man, it is a trip. I think Gregory Peck maybe plays the demon doctor of Auschwitz or something. Or, you know, it, it's about all the Nazis in hiding. And, and I don't think that one is a Forsyth novel. But okay. I don't know, made similar time frames sometime in the 70s, like a little bit of a political thriller. But anyway, I feel like there, there are a couple things. I like Michael Lonsdale. He's, he does have the opening has two narrate two narrators like he does some of it, which sounds like him prepping for the case, which I think is kind of a cool aspect if yeah. you look at it, because he comes in late. But it sounds like you're maybe watching him catch up to when he shows up. But then there's also another matter of fact narrator as well. Is he, is Lonzo the one at the narrator that opens the film? Cause yeah. then it turns into like a radio announcer. That's yeah. Yeah. So, okay. okay. So maybe it's just a radio announcer, but it sounded like it was a handoff of a narrator. You're hearing it. And then all of a sudden a guy hits stop in the tape player and you're like, Oh, okay. I've been here. Okay. Like that. Like that, that's like a nice little mechanism for turning off the narration, you know? That like, is, yeah, not bad. But yeah, he was very dry. He just passed away this year, too. Really? Um, I didn't know Yeah, that. it's been a rough year for uh, the James Bond world. We yeah. lost Michael Lonsdale, Diana Rigg, and now Sean Connery. I like Moonraker a lot. I know it's, it's a weird, but my thing is, with that one, I... I probably on record on podcasts talking about a billion but i'll repeat that i think it's three quarters one of the best bond movies ever made and the last quarter ain't bad and Uh lonsdale's a strong reason i like his villain hugo drax and here you get to see him as as a good guy and he's just he's really funny he's got good chemistry with the young guy that he teams up with to do the search too but and then he gets an action moment in the finale to shoot Jackal. Well, and I think that so so the young guy Derek Jacoby is in like tons of famous old like English mm-hmm. stuff, like done tons of Shakespeare. Yeah, stuff. yeah, he's very familiar. Yeah, I saw him uh, the first time in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. You know, oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Which I sort of love. That's like one of my sick movies. You know, when I have four hours to kill. You know, right. So when I saw the Jackal again 10 years ago, I was like, oh, Derek Jacoby, sweet. But what's what's so great about Michael Lonsdale, I feel like, is that like you get really close to LaBelle. You know, that's the name of Lonsdale's character. You get really close to LaBelle. You get really close to the Jackal. And you don't really realize, like you forget that their on-screen chemistry is so good, you forget they've actually never interacted on screen Mm. until the final big moment you know and 
I, I feel like it took me a long time to to realize that I was really enjoying that about the movie that these guys had on screen chemistry together even though they were never together, and at the end you're like like wow it's kind of a shame one of them has to die. <laughs> right? Yeah. How how do you feel if you're that like cop that busts in and then like gets taken out right before the I end? Right. I was almost. I was I almost to the end of the movie. I know. I know. Well, that actor was probably really pumped just to be there. <laughs> I don't know. Right. That's true. And that end scene where he's doing the assassination, there's a whole lot of like, you know, in the dark night when the Joker infiltrated the police, there's a whole mm-hmm. lot of that in there too. And I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if Nolan was a fan of this movie. This is definitely in his wheelhouse. Yeah, and, interesting. And from that. A couple other cool things, because I'd love to transition to a sec. I'm going to take over. I'll take over this interview. No. There you go. Uh, Do it. No, they want to uh, hear. They want to hear you, not me. No, no, no. Like a couple other cool things that I like because I'm about to transition to some things that that might not work as well. Like I don't want to. Anyone listening, I don't want anyone to think that that this is the perfect movie. I love it, but there are there are things that have not aged well. Mm-hmm. But but before I do that, there are a couple things I love. Like the the entire end sequence shot at the the parade you know mm-hmm. the liberation day parade yep was from what i've kind of like read a pretty big deal to get that footage because they were the filmmakers were allowed access in ways that that most cameras in the past hadn't been allowed access so so what like the footage you're seeing at the end i feel like you really do get an amazing taste for what this celebration feels like you know in paris i think it's probably about akin to our 4th of July, mm-hmm. uh, if every major city had, you know, sidewalks 20 people deep, <laughs> you know, the right. parades and stuff, you know, like, I just feel like that's a lot of fanfare that you don't see that often these days. The, the ending sequence where they're setting up the final day, which they're showing the parade set up, they're showing the crowds accumulate, really beautifully shot and some beautiful footage in there might feel like a little long, but I feel like it's worth it because you also know your act. Like no matter what happens, the movie ends on this day in the story. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is either the day the jackal kills De Gaulle, or it's the day that he fails. You know, so that they they give it some weight, and I really like that. Going back earlier, did you notice that when he's with the gunsmith and he's commissioning his sniper rifle? Did you notice that the gunsmith has a picture of Kennedy out on the table? Oh, no, I did not notice that. Oh, that's... is a hella awesome Easter egg. Right. Because, I mean, this movie's written and shot in the the 70s, but on the timeline of events, it's supposed to be the summer before. Right, yeah, because 63, yeah. Right, and so this is like a little nod that like, oh, maybe... The, the sniper rifle builder is a guy who's maybe in on something in America and has Shoot, a target yeah. in America. And it's a, like, it's not even Kennedy's picture is not even in a shot where like, they don't even make it obvious. Like he's talking with the Jackal and, and it's like, I don't think it's a life magazine, but it's like some magazine open to a page yeah. full profile of, of Kennedy. And you're kind of like, like, okay, I see you. You know, <laughs> yeah, that, I didn't, I didn't pick that up. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. it's a pretty rad piece of storytelling, and I don't think I saw it in the first try or even the second try or third try or fourth try either. 
um, but just something you see later on. So little moments like that, coupled with some of like the the more obvious grand moments, like the parade set up at the end, make me think like, okay, Fred Zinneman really knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These guys are master storytellers. They're playing with a story here where the added challenge is that if they're really trying to root it in some kind of reality, how do you tell a story where the audience knows the ending in real life? In real life, De Gaulle doesn't get shot. Right. So, like, how do you tell a story and keep people involved, even though they technically know the ending? Like, this isn't a Tarantino situation where he's just right. going <laughs> to no, fictionalize the end of a conflict or something. Right. You know? So, like, all that really, I think this was up for best picture. I don't think it won. You can maybe correct me on that, or I can look it up. I don't know. I don't, but, think, I don't think, I know. Um, it didn't Zinn- win. Zinneman won for From Here to Eternity. Like, he won four Oscars. Uh, for directing, it was From Here to Eternity, and then he won a Best Pictures, I think I was a producer for Man for All Seasons. Mm, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if... Oh, Academy Award for, for Best Film Editing, which I think it won. Okay. Golden Globe, it was up for Best Motion okay. Picture. BAFTA was was up for, for Best Film. I don't think it won any of those. So so definitely had like some traction, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, was... uh, yeah, and Zinneman was a big number so it was it would have been like the next film from him at the time well while yeah. a lot of people now might be like who director wise because i don't think he's yeah he's never lived in a time where he was like like our current pop culture climate he was an older director but but yeah back then he would have been somebody to look out for you've been going to a movie based just on his name maybe right right i do that man i do all the time i see tarantino movies just oh yeah we said yeah. we still that like I love doing that. I try to teach people that. I'm like, they're yeah. like, oh, that movie looked good. I'm like, do you know who directed it? Who? I'm like, I'm like, well, did you like this movie? Yeah. I'm like, well, same. Yeah. Like you should follow directors. It's it isn't as enjoyable yeah. as enjoying your Marvel to Marvel movie. Or I like to watch this actor. I'm like, a director can be just as enjoyable because I think, they do yeah, things you I, like. I think I will always show up for an Edgar Wright movie. I think I will always show up for a Ryan Johnson movie after mm-hmm. Knives Out. I mean, I, I'm a Last Jedi fan also. I know yep. that, that that's polarizing, but... Not here. Not on this show. I uh, like rock and roll. <laughs> but no, like, like I, those guys have earned my attention. They've told enough mm-hmm. stories that I love that they've earned my viewership. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, being a film guy, I have like a sh- ton of those guys, but, of course, of too, course. but you know, I, I started with following, you know, like like Tim Burton was my first one of, oh, yeah. you know, consciousness as a kid. And then I you know, Hitchcock, of course, and Kubrick have long been with me, but like John Carpenter followed like a lot of his stuff. And now I'm into like Italian horror directors that I love studying a lot of stuff they do. This movie, actually, one of the things, and maybe it'll be a recommendation to you, but I, I checked out, I haven't watched the whole series. I'm still in the middle of like the first season. It's kind of been a slow back and forth because it's a bit dry, but there's this old British show that nobody remembers that I I only found because of a podcast I listened to. It's called The Sandbaggers, okay. and it's very much like a low-rent version of what the Michael Lonsdale side of the story is trying to do. A lot of office stings uh, dry british stuff it ran for like three seasons back in the 70s and it's if you're into the, like this kind of vibe and stuff it's right there Ooh, it's it's it's, cool. it, it's biggest problem is there's a lot of rampant sexism in their office that's just kind of like yeah it's how things are yeah. but if you're like into that this kind of angle of spy stuff with like government agency business 
stuff stings watching kind of stuff it's it's there like i definitely think this i was getting vibes from it on this one for Interesting. sure cool I, I I'm gonna take your recommendation. I'm gonna check it, it out. It was on BritBox, but I, I found it on I found it on Tubi TV, which is a free service. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was a. Okay. I yeah I like I said it's it's not a one that you could like go through a ton of episodes in a night. It's kind of a savoring show, but yeah. I definitely dig that. Let's talk about some things that don't oh. work. They have a jacket for a second. We're doing it. Yes. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. For all that stuff I love, I do think some things have not aged well. I mean, like the modern movie goer is used to maybe some more realistic violence. Mm-hmm. Like the Jackal, have you noticed the Jackal has this knack for the one-touch kill, like the karate right, yeah. top to the neck that kills a person instantly. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Fun, you know, or like the like one guy, he pretty much, I think all he does is like, punch him in the stomach and knee him in the balls and he dies. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It's, and he gets the word, like the, the most violent thing in the movie is his death. Oh yeah. I would say. Yeah. He gets it worse. You're right. Right. You're right. And that's like, and you feel like that might be the only realistic one, maybe even comic. Well, that's got a little bit of camp in it. Cause he flies yeah. against the wall. Yeah. But like the way he kills, you know, the woman he has an affair with, he like he basically kill kisses her. <laughs> like, yeah, I think, I think you're you're led to believe that he strangles her while they kiss, but there's no like ugly thrashing in the bed. There's no like clawing mm-hmm. at him to fight back. She just like she leans back, lets him kiss her, and oh yeah, you can strangle me at the same time. And like her poet, her hand poetically falls to its side. Right. Know? I mean, and it's, it's takes, gentle. Yeah, I'd say it's it a... four seconds, and her life is over. <laughs> she she was an interesting character too. They could have done a little bit more with her, but um, the actress was really interesting, probably more than the character. She probably gave I, it more so, than it was supposed to. So she's another thing that I, I'm not. I, I certainly don't call it a plot hole or anything, but I do think they could have worked a little harder to make me believe that this woman was up for a fling in a hotel. You know, like, because when you first meet her, she's like a little cold, pretty matter of fact. She's not really buying into his charm when they first meet. I have never myself gone traveling in rural Europe and stopped at like these tiny, like beautiful little chateau slash hotels and picked up a woman in the tea room, basically. Right. But if I did, I have a feeling that it's hard to take that woman who's apparently pretty wealthy mm-hmm. and married. I, I don't think it's as easy to take someone from like stone cold. I'm not interested to, yeah, we're doing this tonight as quickly as the Jackal does. I think that doesn't age super well. I think or there could be um, more to him. We could see instances of people just coming, like having the Dracula allure of exactly something like that, that he could, give off but yeah i mean they could have even done a few things like it's kind of like, like the movie has to go here so it just goes right and it's like they show a few establishing shots of him like eyeing her as in like i need to find a target like mm-hmm. for the night because the whole gimmick for anyone not familiar with the movie is like that he needs he's in this hotel but he needs somebody else's room to stay in in case he gets like in case they, they come in i think that that's like what i've kind of taken right. from it so he like picks her aside from the fact that he's probably also really attracted to her, 
But I think they could have they could have solved that a little bit more if they'd shown her eyeing him as just like, like to your point, he's got this magnetic effect on women. He's suave. He's mm-hmm. good looking. He's stylish. You know, the other thing that strikes me uh, in the interest of time moving on, the other thing that strikes me is when they've got Walensky, they're recording his confession and they're trying to get information out of him. And he's like screaming and writhing. Oh, yeah. And, and they're like, okay. Here are the words we heard. We heard Kleist, Jackal, Fair, Foreign, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and, and like they're working on it all night to decode what all these words mean. And all of a sudden one guy looking at just that list of words goes, wait, what if he's talking about a foreigner with fair hair and the other guy like draws a line on the chalkboard and he's like that's it and it's like okay we had on. to get to you know it's a movie they have to get from point a to they point gotta B get there way, somehow yeah. but i mean like i feel like it's a similar thing when you when you see the jackal working away on his plot and he right. writes and he writes down oh, three he, words. yes yes yeah he's like uh, how where and when and they show him like toiling away cigarette in mouth it's late at night he's yawning he's oh, yeah. like there's books and papers everywhere and then you see his notebook and it's just three words how where and when and he just like check marks how yep. and you're like oh that took all night okay <laughs> he <laughs> knows it. what he's doing well, yeah this guy's a pro this guy's worth every penny of, it's of a, yeah definitely life. an old device but yeah. i was thinking i was like man i need to bring back my uh how when why or where <laughs> notebook that for every morning when i get up i'm like okay uh-huh. How are we exactly. going to do this day? Yeah, I know. how am I going to do this day? Where am I going to go today? I won't when write down how, but I will write I'll write down the word how and put a check once I know Right, how. just a yeah. check, right. Okay, just I got the how. Got okay. it. Yeah. So I so I but I think all that plays into the charm of how this movie has aged. You know, I mean like this doesn't make me like it any less. It kind of yeah, I don't know, maybe in a way it adds to the camp a little bit that gets paid off when he gets like blown away and flies mm-hmm. into the wall at the end, you know, it works. I think all those reasons are why I love this movie and anybody listening and or watching, if you're looking for a throwback thriller, this is, this is a good one. Mm-hmm. Available for free on Peacock. Just what else? This is the segment on the, show where we just talk about other kinds of media and stuff we're taking in in the past week or so. So, Prez, what else? Yeah, gosh, what else? Well, in the past week or so, I've definitely... So, I I think I've told you this before, but I tried to commit to watching every single James Bond Mm -hmm. during the summer, and and I actually I failed. I watched most of the James Bond. Oh, okay. But I got hung up on my favorites, Okay, which I think you know, are in line with most people's favorites. I mean, the early, the earliest ones, you know, are, are kind of my, my big three, Dr. No, Dr. No might be my favorite. I don't know. These are another set of movies that my dad always tried to get us to watch and gotcha. as a kid. Cause my dad said that like, he waited around the block to see Goldfinger just oh, cause wow. it was like the next best, biggest thing. And, and he said it was just so exciting when he saw it the first time, it was just like he couldn't stand it kind of thing, you know? So, yeah, the first three, Goldfinger, Dr. No, you know, from Russia with Love, you just can't beat him. I mean, anytime James Bond, Sean Connery shows up as James Bond, I'm there for it. 
maybe with the ex with the exception of you know the last one that was not like eon production sanction oh the never say never again yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean that one's like okay but i don't like it as much as the other ones right um uh, I like, obviously, uh, maybe not obviously, but I, I like the Daniel Craig run. I'm definitely a fan. I'm sort of a fan of the Pierce Brosnan run because that would have mm-hmm. been like when I was in high school and early college. Right. And so those would have been like some of the ones I saw in the theaters. I can get on board with like one or two of the Roger Moore. I'm okay with the Timmy, Timothy Dalton ones, but I haven't seen all the Roger Moore era. And I've only seen, gotcha. yeah, I've only seen um, Living Daylights from in, in its entirety. I saw a part of, or no, which was the Live and Let Die? No, no, the two Timothy Dalton ones. License oh, Timothy, Living Daylights and License to Kill. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know which one I saw all the way through. I was like just binging. Did it have Robert Davi? Oh, I don't know who that is by face. Um, did he ride on a cello to sled? Oh, then no. Did he ski like on water? I I can't remember because well no no not on not on water well I like it started with a helicopter because he was at his friend's wedding license to kill okay okay got a license to and I liked kill. it and I liked it no his so, his so two were week, terrific yeah so I so recently the things I've been watching like I I still I'm still into the um, you only live twice diamonds are forever I sort of love. Like there's a lot of reasons not to like Diamonds Are Forever, but I love it. The shot in like old Vegas, and you know, as a former resident of Los Angeles, like Vegas is got it's weekends. Got <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, those early ones I've watched a few times this week with Sean Connery's passing. I think I've done a little bit of a Sean Connery binge. Like I haven't gone. Like I watched Robin and Marion this week. That's a good. I really like that one. Yeah, so, I didn't because re- that's another one that I saw when I was in like junior high. Uh huh. And watched again now, and I don't think I realized how similar it was to Prince of Thieves in like mm-hmm. plotline. Like he comes back from the Crusades, tries to get Marion back, mm-hmm. goes to war. The only difference is he dies in Robin and Marion, and he like he does like does okay in Prince of Thieves, and Sean Connery shows up. Yes, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> well, like the Robin and Marion, uh, like because he kind it kind of feels like that first like but a legacy sequel before there were legacy sequels to like yeah. the Robin Hood story. Yeah. Which is interesting, which like the, it's kind of like, I mixed the titles up, uh, The Mask of Zorro uh, with Banderas and The Mark of Zorro from like the, the uh-huh. old days. So that it, it kind of is a sequel to it, but it kind of might not be, but uh, they kind of play that way, definitely. This well, would be more to the Errol Flynn Robin well, Hood. Well, I love the Errol Flynn. Mm-hmm. I mean, I... I I went through a whole Robin Hood like thing when I was a kid. I've got the Errol Flynn right here. There you go. Yes, uh, I, I love I love that version. But what's so great about I read this quote today about Sean Connery. Uh, you know Harrison Ford's tribute to Sean Connery. And, that was, yeah, that was good. Well, I don't know if it was. I think the article I read it in was an article about Harrison Ford's like little tribute to him. But mm-hmm. it was quoting Harrison Ford from an interview from the early 90s or late 80s for uh, oh, okay. Mass Crusade, where Harrison Ford said, you know, there's only 12 years difference between me and Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. He says, but the reason it works is that I look much younger than my age and Sean looks much older than his. <laughs> and, uh, and Robin and Marion is a great example of that mm-hmm. because like he's still like he still had a couple decades left in his career. Yeah. But 
he completely Sean Connery completely like owns the role of like older guy back from the grizzled right. war fields, like not what he used to be, you know, and and he was not like well, he didn't break out till I, he was thirty two. So no, exactly. Yeah. Like he he hit you know he hit older anyway, but. But I mean, it's like he still had plenty of days to go, plenty of years to go in his career before he started playing old men. Right? Yeah, yeah. But it really worked. You know, the 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 gray in the beard, the hair loss. I'm a real fan of the stud actor who just owns the hair loss the way he has. He reminds me a lot of me. I, I'm gotcha. A, an incredibly good looking guy well, who just like owns. Well, he he wore a toupee through his Bond years, so he was already balding and hair thinning when he uh, got Doctor No. Uh, so he, he I did wore, not know that. Yeah, he he wore a toupee all through all through his Bond years. Like even even in the first one in Doctor No, that's crazy. Because mm-hmm. that was one of the things where uh, they wanted him, and I think Fleming kind of complained, and they were like, "Well, wear a toupee." Like yeah, yeah, because he did his test. Yeah, cool. so he yeah he was balding then, but wore toupee. But no, yeah, I love Sean. I'm big. People know I'm a big Bond guy, so. Right um, now, so that's what I've been doing lately. I and as I wait, that, as I sit here, it's my Bond wall. I know this is awesome. <laughs> this is cool. So, uh, I I now I wish I'd watched Moonraker before before this to see Michael Lonsdale in action. Yeah, um, but that'll be one of my next ones. May I ask you what you have been watching this week? Well, I I started the Undoing on HBO. Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, and it's a little kind of scandally mystery thing. It's pretty good. Looking forward to that. I'm only one. There's two episodes now, but I'm I'm only watched one just because I don't know time and just felt like watching other things at the time it came out. That's good audio wise, like podcast wise. I'm not quite through it all, but there's a podcast called From Wondery. Do you know? Have you heard of them before? They're like this. I I wish I come up with half the shows they come up with network and they make money doing podcasting yeah. weird thing they have one called american election wicked game oh. and what it does and they've it's caught up i think it's completed now that we're when we're recording this the election was yesterday they start with each episode is one of the american elections from washington up through trump clinton that's what they've they've done and i'm sure they'll wait a year or something and do biden and trump right and that's how long it's gonna take to figure out biden trump right yeah (laughs) it's documentary style plays kind of like an audio book has like cut scenes from dialogue that is some of it they have to make up and they they have disclaimers that this might not have been actually what was said and they have like it's usually the narrator acting it out, so it gets kind of cheesy, but it's got really dramatic music, but it's really factual, and it's really just crazy to see some of the stuff they pulled during elections and during uh, United States, the forming of the United States and the parties, and yeah. just how some people behaved. Like one political tactic was, I think they call like Andrew Jackson's wife a whore or something, and so when he got elected, he just took it out on all these people. Like it was. Yeah. It's it's crazy and it's really it's straight factual. It doesn't play a bias. It just plays it through. So if oh, there's people worried yeah. that it's going to be some li- Libby thing, it's it's very middle of the road. It plays facts. If you get mad at just factual things that happen, I guess it's not for you, but <laughs> it's very entertaining and just eye-opening just to see how the election where we were 
a poll that you know thinks that Trump did. There were elections going on back then that were just yeah. ugly stuff, just similar like it. So we haven't come that far in dirty politics play and things like that. But it's a fascinating show. They also, it's very similar to shows they've made. Like they've made one on the history of Jaws, history of Psycho that play like just telling the story of how they're like usually multi-part series. But this one's definitely they're one of the best ones I've heard from them. But that's a yeah. If you're interested in American elections and things like that, interesting. I love reading about like the revolutionary era, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, I'd say like 1760 through like 1820 or something, you know, yeah. like the founding. And I and had a college like, history class. that was almost exactly, it was like the founding of America to the civil war. I think it was right to the yeah. start of the civil war. It was yeah, like all that. That's, that's a crazy interesting time because I, I would echo that statement about, you know, everything we think, that has been crazy these days has it's not that it's happened before but something equally horrific has happened in the past that we've already forgotten about like great examples are uh, i think it was henry clay beating a fellow senator like to the point of unconsciousness on the floor like over a disagreement if that happened now you know like like now we're like oh like he said the f word you know to aoc and you're like, okay, well, that is bad. And you yeah. shouldn't do that. If you're a public servant representing like people, you shouldn't do that. That's not classy. But like this guy maimed one of his colleagues with yeah. his, you know, like and no one, like they were like, everyone's like, no, 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 they'll work it out. They'll work it out. Stay back, you know. And um, I mean, even things between Jefferson and Adams got so ugly. Oh, yeah. They those guys were like best friends for like a good long while and even died like as friends, but when they were opponents in the middle there, it's like the amount of slander Jefferson was willing to publish about Adams. Like, you're like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Is, well, it's funny wow. because I think we tend to think since it's so many generations away that everybody was just proper and polite. Right. Oh, and, just, not, and it's not like, no, no, yeah. they're probably worse. They're probably drunk. I think, I mean, history has shown us that most of them were drunk a lot of the time. Yeah. Because that's just what they couldn't drink water. That's what they had. I mean, there were stories. I mean, in this thing, you find out like Lincoln was like willing to like punch people for stuff, like <laughs> and like this, you know, honest Abe, all Abe, like I'll hit him in the face or something. Like he would threaten. He, I think there was a there was, like there was a what got him into wanting to run for offices is he witnessed some like voter suppression in a line during an election and Ooh. threatened to punch these guys, like starting to go throw blows with these guys if they didn't get out, and they did, and that's when he started getting into politics and. Things well, like that. When Lincoln was young, all the accounts are that he was like a physical person, tall yeah. and like muscular, like raised on a farm. And and apparently there's no like real record, but like apparently a very skilled wrestler. Oh, like wow. To, to like subdue somebody fast. Yeah. Um, I think there are a few more like actual recorded accounts of people like Jackson or uh, Teddy Roosevelt like mm, actually okay. roughing someone up later in life. Like, I mean, there's the famous story of Andrew Jackson apprehending his own would-be assailant. Have you heard about that? Like, no. Jackson got, like, they're in a crowd somewhere, I don't know where, and a guy jumps out of the crowd with a gun oh. and pulls the trigger, but the gun jams. And so Jackson's, like, oh. traveling with the bodyguard, and the bodyguard's like, hey, you. And Jackson's like, <laughs> oh, no, I'll take care of him myself. And Jackson, like breaks three ribs, 
fractures an eye socket. <laughs> like, like oh, basically, geez. like puts the guy on the ground like by himself and is like, no one tries to kill Andrew Jackson. <laughs> you know, like. And then Teddy Roosevelt, like the most famous like story about him, right, was that he got shot at a rally before yeah. he took stage, and then he just like did the speech. Yeah. You well, know, he was just like he he just went up there. He's like, he's like, look, this they want to kill me. But I, you know, I'm here for you, whatever. And and his whole mechanism for finding out whether he was mortally wounded or not was coughing into a handkerchief. And he was like, well, if it had come out as blood, I would have known my lung was punctured and I would have been in trouble. Oh. He's like, but, but I kept checking and no blood came out. So I just like talked until I couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> He's like, and then they rushed me to the hospital after whatever. And you're like, all right, that is a this like... Like politics has been a crazy place. It's not yeah. now. It's always been crazy, you know? Yeah. It's relevant because my third book, all those guys are characters in my third unpublished book that's being shopped around to publishers right now. So I'm not ready to like unleash it on the world. But right. I, I drew from years of recreational reading about like the founders and everything. And they, not all of them are characters in the book, but uh, Jackson is and, and everyone before Jackson. Oh, excellent. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Bringing it back around. See what comes of that one for so sure. Here, here's my plug. My only like plug of the night other than go watch Day of the Jackal is that I, I'm knock on wood hoping for it. I'm going to release a book on Black Friday. It's uh, the only time I've ever tried anything like this, but it mm-hmm. was written in the last few like weeks and months okay it is about 2020 it's about an alien who on his study abroad program he is assigned to earth and he's pumped because earth is the party planet Um, (laughs) and he thinks it's going to be like an easy an easy time here on earth just to like sit back and enjoy it but he arrives on january 1st 2020 and he's assigned for the year and so it's it's one letter home per day. It's a collection of letters from oh, cool. Evan. Yeah. Tra- like, and, it, and basically it's him learning about humans, having no knowledge previously. He doesn't really study too hard before he takes the trip. And, and all the stuff that happened this year, like as a writer, you're like, man, we are living in crazy times. It would be stupid of me not to try and capture that. So yeah, my book that will come out on Black Friday is the chronicling of 2020 day by day through the eyes of an extraterrestrial who's here to party. But he doesn't really get to party. Excellent. Well, I I would like to party with that book. That's Yeah, that yeah. sounds great. But that will do it for today's episode. Prez, I'm always really excited to see and talk with you. And I appreciate you coming on. But uh, you got this third book coming. But where else can people find your happenings, find your books? Yep. Uh, you can find my books on Amazon. It's just amazon.com slash author slash press Maxon. But you can find that link either through Instagram. It's just at press Maxon, uh, same handle on Twitter. All right. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. You can find my written work at wiseoblue.com. I'll return tomorrow at 4K Blues Day. Till then, always remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. 
Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetersshow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetersshow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. Why the hell would it be right the next ten times? God!